Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson. Uh, Thank you all for listening, as I'm sure I don't need to say. It has been a while since the previous uh, episode. Uh, Things have been going on, obviously, not just for me, but for any number of people. Um, For myself, I'm still teaching, but I'm teaching out of my house, so using Zoom and uh, other such... uh, remote programs and it's been certainly interesting it is not as tends to be the case it is not as good as having face-to-face interaction with people and uh while my uh mental health has mostly been okay the fact that i'm you know uh stuck at home with my wife and that we enjoy each other's company that's great um i recognize that it is not quite so great for for other people um you might be alone and it's uh some pretty rough stuff so uh, i would encourage uh people to text their friends email their friends and then if they can use google hangouts or zoom or skype or whatever it is to to talk to people i recognize that in my case i do find myself having uh, a reaction to just the sheer number of screens that I am looking at. I look at screens a lot anyway. Uh, you know, my phone, uh, TV and movie screens, and then obviously my computer, but I would get an occasional reprieve, uh, uh, from that when I would go out with with friends and actually see three dimensions uh, when I talk to somebody, but that is not something that is happening now. So I feel like I'm just perpetually looking at flat rectangles and uh, it does get uh, a little bit uh, trying at times. So uh, so yeah, I'm, I, I hope that everybody is, is doing as well as they can. Uh, I also recognize that for some people, their job is such that they can't do it remotely. And so they might be worried about money and and all of that. And so uh, I would say as much as you can look into program, you know, look into unemployment, but also uh, look into whatever programs uh, might be able to help you. And if you do go to a church, maybe reach out to them and see if they can help uh, in some way. So, uh, yeah, this is definitely a time that is extremely rare. This has never happened in in my life and in the lives of a lot of people, and it likely will not happen again. Uh, it's, It's a situation where no matter who you are and where you are listening, to this, you are affected by uh, the coronavirus situation. So uh, that does bring us all together, uh, albeit under uh, under uh, unfortunate circumstances. But it also, if we let it, we can 
really seize upon that commonality and try to be there for each other. And sometimes that means asking for help. Sometimes that means asking other people if they need help um, or just need somebody to talk to. So I'll say if you're feeling kind of low and you would like to talk to somebody, I've got a lot of time these days. So uh, feel free to email me, Tyler, at morethanonelesson.com. And uh, we can uh, talk for a little while and just... Uh, and catch up. Uh, I, I enjoy talking to listeners anyway, uh, but under a circumstance like this, um, maybe people need to talk to someone. And I guess I'm a and I'm around. So, uh, okay. Before we get into today's episode, I did want to tell everybody that my uh, my documentary, Real Redemption: The Rise of Christian Cinema, is now available on the Faith Life TV streaming platform. Uh, there is on the More Than One Lesson website. There is an ad on the side for Real Redemption. You can click on that, and it is a Faith Life exclusive, which means that you have to subscribe to the service. It's four ninety nine a month, but also you get the first two weeks for free, and so if you just wanted to watch my film, then that is the way that you can watch it. Uh, I would suggest staying with Faith Life, though. Um, obviously, right now is not a time when people really are looking to introduce more expenses into their life. But from a from a uh, from a Christian apologetic standpoint, Faith Life has a lot of really good resources, and so uh, I would highly recommend checking them out. And, uh, and checking out my film. I'm, I'm fairly proud of it. I, when I watch it, I definitely see the limitations, uh, from a budget standpoint, from a time standpoint, but, uh, but I'm, I'm pretty happy with it for the most part. So, uh, do check that out when you get the chance. All right. <clears throat> so today we are going to be talking about the invisible man written and directed by Lee. And already we're, we're in bad shape because it's Lee W-H-A-N-N-E-L-L. -L. I don't know if that's Wanell or Wannell. Um, I'm going to say Wanell, uh, and so I feel bad if, uh, if that is incorrect. So the film came out uh, last month. Uh, late last month, I saw the. I went to a critic screening on my birthday, and it was a, a very interesting film to watch on your birthday because it is very intense, and it's not a. This is not a, a, a light film, really. From the word, uh, from it, the moment it starts to the moment it ends, it is going. When I say at full speed, I don't necessarily mean it's a fast-paced movie so much as it is the level of paranoia and intensity and tension that is going on starts from the very beginning and and just never lets up because such is the nature of any movie that deals with paranoia uh, which is a big part of this is that if you if you let the audience off if you make them feel safe in certain circumstances then there's this natural there, natural feeling from the audience is like, well, why doesn't the character just stay in this safe situation? Um, and so it, it relieves the tension a little bit too much, I think. So The Invisible Man does not do that. It The character, uh, played by Elizabeth Moss, is always in a rough situation. And for those that uh, have not seen the film, and I think at this point Universal has made it available to rent online. I think it's fairly expensive. I don't remember exactly, but it's definitely worth watching. It's one of my favorite movies of the year so far. Not that I've gotten the opportunity to see very many, and that's probably not going to change for the next couple months. But uh, 
but yeah, it's, it is, uh, I was, I was looking forward to the film, but I also recognize that, Hey, it could, it could go wrong. You, you never know. Uh, a movie having a good trailer and a good concept doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be executed well, but I think the invisible man is executed wonderfully. Um, partially through its patience and its very methodical pacing. Um, and this is something that happens with all kinds of invisible man movies, which is such a weird thing to say. Um, but, uh, one of the, one of my, uh, sort of pleasure buttons from an artistic standpoint, I don't know why, maybe it's a special effects type thing, but, um, I've always loved invisibility movies or movies that, incorporate the concept of invisibility, even if it's, you know, Harry Potter or something like that. And when you go back to the initial, the invisible man directed by James whale in 1933 starring Claude rains, uh, it's just, a. I I've read HG Wells novel. I watched the original invisible man. I've seen memoirs of an invisible man. I saw hollow man. Like I just, I try to seek these movies out partially because <clears throat> They tend to have really interesting special effects, but also it it just naturally explores themes that I find interesting and maybe even a little bit uh, <clears throat> disheartening or whatever. But, uh, you know, the nature of, of these films is they ask the question of what would you do if no one saw you, if no one uh, would ever ascribe your actions to you? Um, so at the core, these films are, are about a lack of accountability. Um, and when you see a movie like hollow man, uh, directed by Paul Verhoeven, which is notable because if you've seen starship troopers, he also directed showgirls, um, and RoboCop. Like this is a, a director who often engages in pretty extreme imagery, whether it be from a, whether it be violence or sexuality or whatever. And so hollow man, which is not that good of a movie, but it comes along and there are moments that people would say are kind of perverse where the character, um, becomes invisible. And so of course he starts spying on women sometimes very closely and all of that. And as opposed to the original invisible man where the character is, is literally going insane and feels like he's going to, uh, he's going to take over the world. And then there's a moment where he says, he looks up at the moon and he says, even the moon is frightened of me, which again, tells you how crazy the character is getting. But, uh, the idea of, of somebody becoming invisible and immediately just going to their inner, you know, 13 year old boy that like, Oh, I'm just going to spy on, on, uh, women as they get undressed or whatever. Uh, that does feel a little bit more realistic, honestly. Um, there, uh, there is, I think a very real aspect of humanity that we are on our best behavior when people are paying attention. And, you know, the minute the, uh, the cat's away, the cat here being everybody else or social responsibility, whatever you want to call it, uh, the minute the cat's away, then like we start playing and playing in a way that is, uh, a little bit more base. Uh, so anyway, so I just, these, these films tend to touch on things that I really like. And what I, what I think really struck me about, or continues to strike me about the new invisible man is that it actually finds new beats, uh, to play specifically 
when you look at the current cultural moment, which has to do with um, whether it be romantically or professionally or whatever it is, the idea of, of women being uh, targeted and treated as though their particular feelings or their goals don't really matter, that the, the men in their lives are saying like, yes, I, you're important to me, but when it comes right down to it, I just, I need you so that I can continue doing what I'm doing. Um, and so there's an aspect of women being taken for granted, but then also this concept of, of possessiveness um, on the part of, of men. Now, obviously, this does not apply to the vast, vast majority of men and women. Uh, and I don't think it necessarily has to be specific to men and women. There are plenty of uh, situations where uh, a man could find himself in a relationship that is very, um, it's kind of a buzzword, but very toxic and very possessive. Um, so it's it can be universal. Um, I don't say that solely because uh, the studios, uh, Universal Studios, but um, but I do think that it, it definitely la it definitely capitalizes on the current cultural conversation in a way that doesn't strike me as particularly preachy. Um, and incidentally, uh, a, a movie being preachy doesn't mean that I'm not on board with what it is saying. Uh, it's more just about the tone. And I feel like if often when a movie is, is trying to capture a cultural moment, they usually, it usually lays it on pretty thick and it becomes for me very off putting because it tries too hard and all that sort of thing. But the invisible man, I think is a very, uh, I think it's a very subtle movie. Um, partially because it, for a good portion of the film, you're really not sure if the main character is actually going crazy and that she has been, she was in this relationship that just held on to her for so long that when the relationship is over, you know, you can't necessarily just, it, you're happy to be rid of the situation, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the situation is, is rid of you as they say. And so, um, so you're not sure if she's just, she just feels like this man is is still in her life and still controlling her and still impacting her, uh, but that he's long since dead and she's just doing this to herself. Uh, in that regard, the film is, is very similar to uh, a movie that was almost the companion film, but I, I, I opted to go with something else. Um, but uh, Roman Polanski's Repulsion, which uh, is all about this woman who, in this case, her her oppression is imagined, but it comes from a trauma that is very, very real. Whereas here, for a good portion of the movie, you think that might be the case before you come to realize that no, there is somebody, uh, her ex-boyfriend, who is actually somehow invisible and is terrorizing her. Um, and so when, when the film begins, uh, you see this really nice house, uh, by the ocean, clearly the people that live inside it are rich. And you see this young couple asleep at like 3 a.m. And the woman wakes up and, and quietly moves her, her boyfriend's hand off of her uh, body. And then she, you, you feel like maybe she's going to the bathroom, but you realize quickly that she's not, that she is trying to get away from him. And when, and you see that like she's moving security cameras, there's a lot of security uh, in this house. So she's moving security cameras. She's grabbing a bag that she has pre-packed and you realize like, Oh, this is something she's been planning for a while. 
um, and she has to be totally quiet. And we realize later what happens when uh, she does make a noise and she does wake him up. And you see just for a moment how uh, crazy uh, her boyfriend can be. So, uh, so again, like that in itself is it doesn't take long for us to realize that the situation is, is pretty rough. Um, but also from a stylistic standpoint in this moment, you know, it's all about her being quiet. And so any noise that she makes is really, um, heightened in the, in the, uh, in the mix, because when silence is the most important thing, then it makes sense that, that, any noise is going to feel thunderous. Even it doesn't necessarily make sense, but it puts us in her mindset. And it's there's a moment where she kicks a metal uh, dog bowl, and I mean it's the sound is is jarring. Like people in the theater uh, like screamed or gasped when that happened because they weren't expecting it. And it's it's such an interesting jump scare where it's it's not as though something dangerous is is coming from outside of the frame or anything like that. And then there's a, a burst of music. No, this is simply the character was, is planning on something, but you can't control everything. And this, and the stuff that is out of her control is just as threatening as a direct threat because it will alert someone to what she is doing. So there's, uh, there's, that's one aspect stylistically in the film and the film does that all throughout is there are moments where she will be standing by herself in a room and you know when you're when the threat itself can't be seen you have to really be paying attention to any kind of noise it might make uh there's a moment in memoirs of an invisible man which is not a very good movie partially because i think it doesn't quite know what it wants to be but it's a john carpenter film starring chevy chase of all people and there's a moment where he is in the office. So his character becomes invisible and he's in the office of the government agent that is trying to capture him. And the government agent doesn't know that, but uh, there's a moment where Chevy chase has been like, just crouched in the corner just to stay out of the way and just listen in without being detected. But then uh, as he starts to get up, his joints start to pop. And that's when the government agent, starts to feel like maybe there's something going on. And so he fakes a yawn knowing that yawning can be, uh, uh, infectious. And sure enough, Chevy chase then yawns and can't help it, which the, which the agent hears. So again, uh, you just have to, it's not a thing that you think about in everyday life, but just living creates noise, you know, like, have you ever like, whether it be your phone or your glasses or whatever it is, whatever you might have on your person, uh, walk up to a table and then just set it down as quietly as you can and, and try to pay attention to any noise that it might make as it comes in contact with that table. There will be something. It might not be super noticeable, but we, we often think that we're being very quiet, but it's like, yeah, you can't be completely silent. And this is something that the director really seems to understand, along with the importance of showing an empty room. There are moments where uh, our our character will suspect that her ex-boyfriend is in the room with her, and then she looks to the side, and then the camera very slowly pans, 
and you don't see anything. And then there are times where she will leave the room. She she's certainly out of frame, but sometimes she'll actually leave the room and the camera will just stay there, just looking at the empty room. And you keep expecting like, oh, a chair's gonna move or something like that. Uh, and sometimes it doesn't. Um, and in fact, most of the time it doesn't. Every once in a while you see like some little things like, ah, he's there. But other times you don't see anything. And you come to find out later on that he was there, but he was doing a very good job of not being detected. And that only makes you more paranoid when he shows an empty room because sometimes he is and sometimes he isn't. But when you're that... Uh, when you're that attuned to emptiness, uh, then that means the film really has you in its in its hold, and that you're you're becoming as paranoid and as vigilant as the main character. Um, and once again, the the main character named Cecilia, she's played by Elizabeth Moss, who I think does a really great job. It's a tough. This is a tough type of character to play because it's a bit of a tightrope. You don't want her to be so crazy and over the top that uh, that she's very easy to dismiss, even maybe by the audience. Um, but you do want her to to be unbelievable. You do want the people that care about her to think, yeah, the, the, she's she's not stable because of this bad relationship. Like if she goes, if she's too sane, then then you wind up getting angry at the other characters. Like, can't you tell that she is totally uh, in her right mind? But if she goes too far in the other direction, then you're totally on board with the other characters who are dismissing what she says. So when it comes down to empathy, trying to get you to empathize with her, a big part of it has to do with how the film is shot and the sound design and all of that. But another has to do with the performance itself. It needs to be... It needs to have a the right amount of panic without ever seeming like it is so big and histrionic that you yourself don't really want to sympathize uh, or empathize with her. And uh, it's it's been very interesting. Um, uh, Jen and I have uh, we were watching uh, early episodes of The West Wing the other day and seeing a young Elizabeth Moss there, and then Jen has been going going back through Mad Men, and so you see, you know, that's the show that really started to establish uh, Elizabeth Moss, and she's been in, in a number of films, and uh, she's just become such a reliable actress. She is able to project tremendous strength and tremendous weakness, and I think when you have actors, or I would say more specifically actresses, because this this tends to be, uh, we tend to focus more on on frailty and weakness if the main character is uh, a woman because in our minds we have this idea of of men being inherently brave and women being weak probably because of early stereotypes in film and that sort of thing but here uh we see that she is not uh She's not like this, uh, an incredibly strong character. There is, there is a strength to her, but there is st she still panics. She still freaks out. She's still terrified. Uh, but when she does make this turn and has to become more emboldened and, and stronger and actually stand up to the idea of her boyfriend, when she has to do that, it can't come as a complete surprise. So she has to layer on a level of intelligence and a layer of, uh, a level of strength uh, early on in the film, uh, so that so that it's not it doesn't come out of nowhere when she does make that turn. And so, like I said, it's being the the 
the main character, a frightened main character in a horror movie, uh, is a really hard thing to do. If you look at, at uh, the movie Get Out and you look at what Daniel Kaluuya is doing, along with any, you know, along with Sigourney Weaver in Alien or or characters, you know, from Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Halloween, there is this, I think they, there needs to be a level of incredulity in their performance because they're in ridiculous circumstances. And if they play them as they're on board immediately, then it actually takes us out of it. They need to sort of represent us. And if we suddenly had the feeling that uh, there is an invisible person in our room, our first thought would be uh, like, okay, well, that's a dumb thought, and then you would move on. And so you need, so the the actors need to play that level of they know what is reasonable, and they will first go to that level of reason in an unreasonable situation before finally giving themselves over to it. Um, and that goes for supporting characters as well, but there are times when a supporting character still doesn't believe uh, what is going on, and that's okay. The lead, however, does have to believe it after a certain point, and they have to believe it believably. Uh, it's probably a better way to phrase that. So, so yeah, one thing that I, I will say um, is that, and I and I've I've read some people commenting on this. There there are a fair amount of like plot holes in the invisible man. Like there are moments where you're like, well, wait, why, how could, how's that possible? Um, especially when dealing with a film that is technically science fiction, it really doesn't feel like that. It definitely feels like more of a just conventional thriller, but the, the, the outlandish aspects of the film fall under science fiction. Uh, and so when you're dealing with science fiction, there is a tendency to really want to focus on what makes sense. And there needs to be a certain degree of logic, even when dealing with something a little bit metaphysical like Solaris or 2001 A Space Odyssey. Um, and here, yes, there are some plot holes. And you know what What gets me is uh, I don't care. Um, if I were younger, if I were 10 or more likely 15 or 20 years younger, uh, that kind of thing would probably keep me from embracing, uh, the movie. But honestly, I really don't care. The style is there. The character is there. The themes are there. It's all working. And granted, uh, I won't necessarily begrudge somebody for not being able to give themselves fully over to a movie that has, uh, plot holes. But to me, and I, and I guess there comes a moment when, if a film has too many of a certain type of plot hole and it feels like lazy writing as opposed to simply recognizing that not everything needs to make sense and just moving on with total commitment, uh, then yeah, that, that will probably take me out of a film. But usually in a situation like that, if it comes down to laziness, the laziness is not solely a function of the writing. It probably comes in with the filmmaking as well. And here, uh, there is, I don't think any laziness at all, uh, from, from the film, uh, and from the, the filmmakers and the actors. I think everybody is, is totally on board. And so I am able to overlook those plot holes to such an extent that some of them I was aware of when they were happening. And then some of them I thought back on afterwards. And that's when I realized, and so I guess sometimes that, you know, when you, when you reflect on something uh, on a film later, uh, that reflection could reveal like, Oh yeah, you know what? I actually don't think I like this movie as much as I did. Whereas here I was reflecting, I was like, Oh yeah, I guess that is a bit of a plot hole. 
oh well, I still really responded to the film. And so, uh, and I think you will too. Um, I really can't recommend it highly enough. It was, it was everything I wanted it to be and a little bit more. So the companion film today is a movie that I have talked about before. It's a movie that I really love. It is, uh, directed by Dallas Hallam and Patrick Horvath. It is called entrance. Now, uh, I know Dallas and I know Patrick, um, they have been on Battleship Pretension before. They are incredibly nice guys. Um, I got to know them because of this film. Uh, my uh, acquaintance, um, Josh Fadum, said, hey, I think you guys should come to this screening. And so I went to the screening of Entrance not knowing what to expect, and it really blew me away. And since then, I've gotten to know the the filmmakers. And, uh, and it, this is a film that... I really can't recommend highly enough, but I also recognize that for a lot of people, they will not care for it. More traditional horror fans uh, find the movie boring. Uh, it's what has been referred to as a slow burn horror film uh, in that a lot a lot of quote unquote nothing happens for a while and then a lot of things happen. I'm not... I don't require that a horror movie be that, but that tends to be the kind of horror movie I like the most. Uh, if you look at a movie like Alien um, or uh, even something like The Shining, which I don't necessarily love The Shining, but I like the idea of like an atmosphere is established, uh, character relationships, character motivations are established before things really start to uh, get into gear. And with entrance, this is a situation, again, this has to do with being like a young woman um, feeling like uh, there are eyes on you. And in the case of entrance, uh, it's a film that takes place in the middle of a city and uh, the the young woman played by Susie Block, uh, her car has broken down so she has to walk everywhere. And so in some cases, it could just be like a random guy who is who notices that this is an attractive young woman, and so he's sort of shouting stuff to her. Um, it could be that. It could be she's hanging out with friends, and there's a specific guy who is clearly attracted to her, and he's not predatory really at all. He's a little bit awkward, which can make for which makes him seem a little bit creepy, especially in a movie with this type of atmosphere. Uh, and so here, it's it's not merely that like one person is watching you, it's that everybody is watching you. Uh, but then as the film goes on, you get the feeling that there's more, that there's, it's more than that, that there actually is somebody who is stalking this young woman and, and is obsessed with her. We never see this person. Um, and so again, we don't know if there's actually something going on until it becomes very clear that something is going on. And so, uh, it's really a, a great movie. Um, again, I will I will emphasize that it's not necessarily for everybody. It requires a tremendous amount of patience and an attention to detail. Um, and so, as you watch it, it might appear as though nothing is going on, but in actuality, stuff is always being set up uh, f- to be paid off later. And it really is. I I really love the love the film. Um, so. Both of these films have to do with 
somebody in this case, a guy being obsessed with uh, a woman. And after Jen and I saw the invisible man, she was saying like, Oh yeah, I actually uh, have been listening to a podcast all about stalking. And she told me some of the stories from, and it sounds just nightmarish to have somebody who's just obsessed with you and won't let you go to such an extent that like, if you move, they still find a way uh, to track you down. I mean, that's, and even though it would appear that they, mean you no real harm, um, in actuality, there is that perpetual threat because it's like, oh, why can't this person understand how much I care about them? I, maybe I'll have to do something extreme to show them how committed I am. Again, like this is, I think somebody who's stalking somebody else is not thinking very clearly and there might be something genuinely wrong with them mentally, uh, not to necessarily let them off the hook, but I, I think it's safe to say that, the, that you can't reason with them. And so in that, in their mind, it's, oh, well, if I hurt this person, they'll understand, uh, the, the hurt that I feel from their rejection, which of course, if you actually care about somebody, you won't want to hurt them. Uh, so, it's, it's so strange, but it also really sounds terrifying uh, in many ways and just oppressive. And so uh, the idea of, of stalking, especially in the Internet age, has become so it's a term that just gets thrown around like, ah, what, what are you, a stalker? Like, cause somebody was, you know, cause you were looking at somebody's photo from like a year ago or something like that. Uh, meanwhile, when you actually run across like an actual stalking situation, you're like, oh boy, yes, this is not something uh, to be taken lightly. And so that's sort of at the core of both of these movies is you have these guys who uh, feel somehow entitled to a relationship with these women. And it, it just got me thinking, I, I am, I am not a uh, stalker, um, but I definitely know what it is to look at someone that is important to you. Maybe even look at anybody, uh, you know, the other people's opinion is very important to me. Uh, and it's uh, other people's opinion should be important to us, but at the same time, I think I, I value it more than I should, um, to such an extent that, you know, I'm, definitely getting better at this. But if my wife and I have a fight, I, it really feels like I can't do anything else, or at least not with my whole heart until we've found, we've gotten to some level of resolution. Um, and at the core of that is a certain lack of, of trust, this feeling like, well, we've gotten a fight. And so like, I'm perpetually, you know, until we figure it out, I'm, I'm, uh, the way I phrase it is I'm in a state of failure. And I know that my tendency in a moment like that, I certainly feel bad for whatever my contribution to the argument was, but my natural instinct, which again, I thankfully am getting better at, but my natural instinct is to just like apologize profusely, uh, failing to hold the other person accountable, which is sometimes important. Uh, but it's because, but it's not about them. It's not about doing what's right for them. It's about getting to a place where I feel like I'm okay. And so the apology, you know, I mean, everything's torn because it's just like on one hand, yes, I do feel bad for what I've done and I do feel sorry for it, but the apologies are more about wanting the other person to say, it's okay, we're doing okay. And as opposed to really listening to what that other person wants. And I do think that that, you know, that is 
a far cry from the invisible man or, or entrance, but I think at the core of it, those are extreme versions of, of putting somebody else on a pedestal and really just idolizing people, uh, and saying that they're the most important thing, uh, to me and without them, who am I? You know, if you look at it that way, then yes, on one hand, on a, on a much more relatable level, you will maybe put emotional pressure on them or whatever it is, and certainly on yourself. But if you just heighten that, if you take that to an extreme, then it's this idea. It's like, well, if this person leaves me or if this person rejects me and I've found my identity in them, well, then who am I anymore? I'm nobody. I'm, I'm irredeemable, whatever it is. I'm in a perpetual state of failure. And for some people that's more than they can deal with. And so they have to, they feel they have to possess this person. They need to, they need to hold on to this person until the, until it becomes very clear that this person, this significant other, whether it be a girlfriend or a, a wife or a boyfriend or a husband or a complete stranger that for some reason you have put, you've projected a lot of things onto, it becomes very clear that that, that person isn't, isn't even really a person anymore. And this certainly is not a relationship. A relationship has a back and forth. This, however, is all about how the relationship is defining you, never mind what the other person feels. Um, everything is about how you feel. And it, uh, you know, it's, I was talking with Jen about this and when we talk, when you listen to love songs and when you watch a lot of the not as good romantic movies, um, there's such an emphasis on, I would do anything for you and I'm nothing without you. And while I recognize that there is a certain degree of rhetoric to that, I do think that there's, there's an unhealthy aspect to the way we talk about love and the way we talk about other people. Um, and I'm not saying you need to be, you need to only focus on, on yourself. Uh, we'll get to what I mean in a moment, but this feeling of I'm nothing without you, um, we feel as though that, that, that that puts somebody, uh, that elevates somebody above us and that we're humbling ourselves to admit such a thing. But in actuality, uh, it's not an inherently good thing. It can be good to be self-sacrificing and it can be good to to really try to put yourself aside in some circumstances and try to, to love this other person the way they need. But again, that focuses on what they need and it, and it requires listening to them. And it also means that at some, uh, occasionally, you might fail in giving them what they need and there might be times when you need something and you have to ask them for it. Um, again, a relationship is about a back and forth understanding that neither party is perfect and that you will argue and you will let each other down and that you can, and that there is forgiveness required. And so, uh, so I would, you know, certainly this is what these movies, this is what the invisible man got me thinking about is the way, the ways that I maybe not in such so extreme a way, but the ways that I, uh, put other people on a pedestal and then I do everything I can, uh, to make sure that they're happy with me. Not that they're happy in general, but that they're happy with me. Like it seems selfless, but when it comes right down to it, it, it is all about me. And that is unfair to them because it, 
it means that they can never get angry at you. They can never assert themselves. They can never let you down. Um, because if they do that, then, then you start to wonder what all of this was for. And, and it really, uh, it forces somebody else to be perfect when they literally cannot be. And so obviously I'm sure you, you're, you see where I'm headed here. Um, because the only perfect relationship in a sort of an abstract sense that we can really have as Christians is a relationship with God. Um, you know, one of the 10 commandments is, is don't have any gods before me. And then another is don't make any, any, uh, graven, uh, uh, images. And while it's unlikely that uh, I'm going to go chisel something out of stone and worship it, it is much more likely that something that is more tangible than God, uh, for some people it could be money, for some people possessions, for some people it could be the way their body looks, and then for still others it could be uh, their significant other or their friends or just people in general. All of it is something that you can see, just like you can see an actual idol and because we can see that and we can't see God. And in my case, you know, I've talked about this before. I get, I often get frustrated by my own spiritual life because I feel like, uh, for somebody like myself, I, I, I am a little bit hypersensitive to my own emotions and my spiritual life has, has rarely been an emotional affair and emotions tend to be how I verify if something is true. So if I'm not feeling, uh, my relationship with God, if I'm only thinking about it, um, then it feels less, uh, legitimate, less, uh, valid than the other aspects of my life, which are right in front of me. I can hear when somebody else is talking, uh, audibly, uh, whereas I can't do that with God. I only have the Bible and, again, for me, it's mostly been an intellectual thing and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but it does mean that I need to work maybe a little bit harder than some people for whom it is both intellectual and emotional. And, and maybe that's the case for you. Maybe, in fact, it's, it's probably the case for everybody that is, that is a Christian. Like it it can be very easy to move through your life and realize like, Oh, I haven't really thought about God today. I haven't prayed today. I haven't read the Bible today. Um, and then we feel distance from distant from God, which then actually turns into a vicious cycle. And we feel less inclined to pray, less inclined to read the Bible and that sort of thing. So, uh, but one thing that I wanted to, to talk about is, is I have a number of, of Bible verses here and passages in which God talks about his love for us. He talks about his forgiveness of us and all of that. You know, when we think about the concept of perfection, no person can live up to that. And if we need them to, then that can throw us into a tailspin, but God can live up to that because he's not a person. And I realize that if you're a a non-believer listening to this, you would, you would say like, yes, he's not a person. He's not even a thing. He's nothing. And you're putting your faith into something false. Uh, and what I would say is that, uh, you're welcome to believe that. Uh, and that's, that's fine. Uh, but I think at the core of what I'm saying, I think that it is still true that you cannot and should not put so much pressure on another person to define you and define your life. Uh, that you stop seeing them as an actual person and start just worship, worshiping them as as a uh, stone idol and uh, not really caring what they want or what they ask for. Uh, but anyway, so, okay. Uh, so Zephaniah 3.17 says, 
the Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will but will rejoice over you with singing. Like this is a this is a a God who is not dispassionate. He is not distant. He sees what you are doing, and he will no longer rebuke you. He takes great delight in you. He will rejoice over you. You know, uh, when we think of uh, our relationship with God, we think solely in terms of worship, which is understandable. He is in fact God and we are not. But the fact that he looks at us and delights in us as opposed to, you know, it doesn't say the Lord, your God is with you. He condescends to tolerate you. It doesn't say that. Uh, it's his, his view of us is much more active and much more involved than, uh, than it would seem. Uh, Proverbs, um, is that right? Oh no, sorry. Um, Psalm, yeah, actually a lot of these are going to be Psalms. Uh, Psalms 34, 17 through 18, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And so this isn't s- simply a situation where God sees the good things you're doing or he sees the, the, the little idiosyncrasies and delights in you, but he also sees when you are sad and sees when you feel alone and he comes close to you in those moments. This is not a situation, you know, and this, this, this happens in relationships, friendships or, or, or romantic relationships where you are in a bad place and the other person, even if they try, they might not be in a position to really provide much assistance, but God is always there. Uh, he has, he's perpetually strong and, uh, and will not buckle under the weight of your issues and your brokenheartedness. Um, and then similarly, Psalm 55 verse 22, cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. And, you know, I recognize that all of this is very abstract. Um, you know, when it says like he's close to the brokenhearted and elsewhere, it says that God will provide comfort. And it's such a weird I don't mean comfort as in like, like, ah, your life will always be comfortable. I mean that like when things are, are, are down and you're feeling a certain way that God is, is close to your, close to you and will comfort you. Um, you know, it's tough because I don't really know what that looks like, except maybe I do. There have been times when I'm tremendously depressed. I'm sure there are times when you've been very depressed, when you've gone through something really difficult in your life and you certainly don't feel comfort. Um, which leads me to believe that like a lot of what God is doing is maybe lessening the blow so that you're not as devastated and that you can keep going through life, you know, and maybe that's, that's the comfort that is provided as opposed to, you know, a loved one dies and God's like, well, I said I'd provide comfort. So I'm actually going to remove their sadness completely to such an extent that they are no longer mourning over this person. He understands that this person, or it could be a job that you lost, or, you know, right now, a lot of people are, are dealing with some difficult stuff. Um, and it's, it could be like, well, it would be callous, uh, for God to simply remove that sadness and that suffering, uh, and that brokenheartedness from your life, uh, that, and that would also not be helpful for you, but he can help you process and deal with those feelings so that you're not overwhelmed by them, you know? And that goes to what I was saying before, which is 
someone who didn't care about their about their loved one, let's say a spouse, someone who didn't care about their spouse when their spouse is in a rough place uh, would just say, I need to do everything I can to cheer this person up so that they're not feeling this bad thing anymore. Um, when in fact, that might not be what the person needs. In fact, it it isn't what the person needs. They just need, they might just need someone to listen while they are in this place so that they don't feel alone in this place. Um, and God, rather than say, I will remove all sadness from you. Uh, there is a promise, uh, in revelation that there will finally be a place where there is no sadness, but right now, while we are still here, um, He's not saying, I'm going to take all of this from you. He's simply saying, I will be there with you and comfort you. Um, okay, so we have a, we're going to end with this long passage from Psalm 91. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by the day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you say, the Lord is my refuge, and you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show, my, show him my salvation. Now, in that passage, there's a lot of promises. There are promises uh, that, uh, hey, you'll be fine. Granted, I am maybe being a little bit... Uh, a little bit casual in my uh, summation there, uh, because it's not actually saying that. Um, it's not saying, ah, you'll be fine, because it says you'll be able to, you'll trample the lion and the cobra, and it says, like, you will avoid pestilence and plague, which obviously plays into what we're all dealing with right now. Uh, but elsewhere it says, uh, he will call on me and I will answer him. This is the, uh, the Lord talking. Uh, he will call on me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. And so it seems odd that like, well, he just said that he won't let any trouble come to us, but here it says he will be with us uh, in trouble. And so which is it? And I think it ultimately comes down to, you know, a verse about a God who can give you strength in a bad situation. And, you know, elsewhere in the Bible, it talks about not letting things crush us um, and devastate us and all of that. And so uh, I think this this does suggest that there will be trouble, but that God will give us the strength and will keep us from being completely crushed by that. And crushed here doesn't necessarily mean uh, killed, you know, or even hurt or wounded or sick or whatever, but that this doesn't have to be the defining aspect of our lives. And that even within those things, there's tremendous hope if we allow there to be hope. Um but uh, so all of this is to say that if we look at this, there are so many promises from God 
to us, whether it be things that are going on emotionally or physically or spiritually or cosmically, whatever it is, there is a promise that God is engaged with us as individuals, that he delights in us, but that he also will be with us when things are bad and that he will keep us from being, being crushed and that he will be with us when we're in trouble. And so, you know, that is a, that is a, what it is to be in a perfect relationship with somebody. And granted, it's, it may not feel perfect. Like when things are, are bad, we may ask, why did God allow this to happen? And I think that's a perfectly valid question to ask. And it's something that you can ask him and talk to other believers about and talk to, you know, your spiritual mentors about and certainly read the Bible, um, you know, because these, this is the way that God can, can speak to us. And, uh, people, as we saw in Job, like people might actually have the wrong advice for you. Uh, and so that's why it's important to, to always go back into the Bible, something I say, you know, very casually, but it's easier said than done. Um, and so, you know, this is why, in it, going back to the Ten Commandments, is why God says not to make an idol. Why not? Why you shouldn't have any gods before Him? Because those things will let you down. And if you've put all your faith in them, the way you should be putting your faith in God, who cannot let you down in a larger sense, obviously uh, and immediately. But again, it's it's about perception. But um, that if we put all of our faith and we find our identity in idols, which could very well be another person. Um, then we can, it can actually make us bad people. It can, it can make us, uh, feel like, well, we need to possess this thing. We need to make sure this thing never gets away from us because to go back to what I was saying earlier, who are we? If not, if that thing is gone and that thing could be another person. And yes, it can be heartbreaking. Uh, if somebody, uh, says something hurtful and, or if somebody breaks up with you or whatever it is, that can be devastating. Don't get me wrong. Um, but what God says is like, I will be with you in those moments and you can still, you can continue on and that sadness will be a part of you, but, I, but so will I, I'm not going anywhere. You know, it goes back to that idea of, of the, the footprints, uh, concept, which is, you know, you're walking, um, you know, you're walking along the beach with, uh, with Jesus. And then you look back and you see two sets of footprints, but then there are moments where there's one set of footprints and you think like, Oh Jesus, where were you? And he goes, no, the one set of footprints is when I carried you. Uh, it's a, you know, it's, it's been referenced, uh, so much and, uh, often in a parody as well, but it definitely does, uh, speak to this idea that we sometimes feel like God is absent, but he is not. Uh, and in fact, the reality might be even more, uh, affirming than, than we think. Um, and incidentally, we'll, we'll talk about the footsteps thing, uh, in the next episode as well, in which we'll be talking about bad times at the El Royale. Uh, but in the meantime, yeah, I, I hope that this episode was uh, was edifying to you uh, as far as how we approach other people and and how we define ourselves and the uh, the very unfortunate things that can happen to us and that we can do to other people if we identify if we define ourselves by the wrong thing. So anyway, uh, okay. So as a reminder. Uh, check out The Invisible Man. Go and rent Entrance as well. I believe it's available on Amazon. Um, 
And uh, and while you're looking for stuff to watch, check out uh, Real Redemption on Faith Life TV. And if you have any uh, questions or anything like that, you can email me, Tyler, at morethanonelesson.com. Uh, and like I said, if you're looking for, if you feel like you need someone to talk to, uh, you're welcome to reach out and uh, we can we can work something out. But in the meantime, thank you everybody for listening and we'll get you next time. Bye.